This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Curioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 183, Welsh Education. Education in the past, at least since the days of Roman Britain, had been the purview of the clerical and noble classes. In some cases, merchants, lawyers, and business people in general started to learn at least some version of literacy. In some cases, it was simple numeracy, or in other words, knowing how to count and to add numbers. But at other times, knowing how to read in English, Latin, or French was keys to power and financial gain. In medieval Wales, there is evidence that some priests taught young people of their parishes. Typically, these were in the forms of song schools found in cathedrals, at collegiate assemblies, and at some parish churches. Along with these schools were grammar schools. These two supported by cathedrals and collegiate churches. In Penlech, in Carnarvonshire, Wrexham, and at Haverford West, the parish churches maintained grammar schools. In Montgomery, another grammar school was held by the local priest. Scholars think that Montgomery was likely not the only market town in which had at least one of these sort of jury rig schools, for lack of a better word, but the evidence in itself is based simply on the idea that if there's one, there's probably more, rather than actual evidence. The monasteries had some role in education, but the exact nature of it was much less defined. While there was no direct evidence that any of the Welsh monasteries kept a free school, some parish schools continue to exist where a monastery had acquired these particular parishes. So if a school was already pre-existing, it was easy enough for the monasteries to keep them going. It is possible that the monks themselves offered some form of training in the graces to children of these gentry in their neighborhoods, and that they provided some kind of training for the novices that were looking to get into the clerical profession. However, this is just an assumption rather than evidence of actual alignment. Yet, within this body of evidence, it is obvious that some sort of formal training did take place because schools such as Oxford became training grounds for clerics, and not a few of these were of Welsh origin. Remember in earlier episodes we mentioned that Welsh-born clerics in Oxford fled to Owen Glyndwr's banner in early 15th century, and that the loyalty to nation came out of these schools. After the Glyndwr Rebellion the, and the genuine challenges of the economy of war-torn Wales, war on its citizens, many of these Welshmen fled and in doing so entered into business and education classes 
continuing a development of Welsh nobility and landowners in sending children off to learn numbers and letters from other schools in and around England. This in part to teach them the basics of what was happening in the halls of power, but also to protect themselves during the War of the Roses by having some of their kin matched up with various sides to protect the family as a whole. By the time of the Tudors, continued advancement of the Welsh nobility saw them seeking to bring formal education opportunities back to Wales. This met a government that were eager to have educated men to build out of its ever-increasing bureaucracy, especially after the Reformation, as the default clerical rules were now wanting. Reminder that most bureaucracy up until the end of the Middle Ages was done by clerics of the church, and most actual diplomacy was also done by the bishops and the priests and that kind of thing. Remember negotiations with, say, uh, Llewellyn the Great and Henry III came out of discussions that were made via their priests. This, of course, included Owen Glyndor and uh, Henry IV as well. However, nonetheless, all of these end when the Reformation begins. Of course, that didn't preclude committed religious men from hoping to create a literate Bible-reading public in Wales. In fact, they would continue to send educated ministers and uh, men of, at the very least, lay preachers off to Wales in order to help instruct and continue to enlighten people. These scholars would bring with them some sort of education, which would then be brought to both poor and rich members of Wales to gain both a more literate class, but also, of course, to gain followers. And in the Reformation, one of the biggest things that came about and really set it off was the ability to read documents in your own language, something that was important to the Puritans, to the Lutherans, to the Methodists, to everybody in between, because the best way to carry out an argument to convince people to follow your ideas, especially in an age when you know, the next person over might decide that your ideas are kind of dumb and they have their own ideas. So how best to make that argument, since you can't necessarily go from place to place to place, is to publish documents which then make that argument for you. But if the majority of the population can't actually read it or understand it or at least share it with their friends and neighbors in a way that makes sense, then you don't have the ability to make those arguments. It becomes very problematic in that respect. And of course, as we talked about, that's where the printing press became super important to these people, and it would become increasingly important as we continue to move forward. In 1541, the royal license for the foundation of Christ's College Brecon was concerned about the low level of education in the area, and thus the reason for its foundation. The Tudor government's objective was to produce good citizens and loyal subjects, and in order to facilitate this, they should, by argument, be taught the English language. Note immediately what that means. The school was built at the House of the Friars Preachers in Brecon and was provided with endowments to pay the salaries of the schoolmaster, the usher, a reader of divinity, and the preacher, whose responsibilities were to give instruction in letters and to expound purely and freely. No fees were to be required 
from the scholars or their parents, something that we start to see more and more. With the rise of the Anglican Church, this continued to be an important step in development of Welsh schools. In 1561, Bishop Thomas Davis of St. Aphith announced that the teaching of children is very necessary and explained that all good Christians in my diocese to pay such stipend accustomed to be paid the lady priest to such schoolmasters as shall thought meet by me. In other words, basically, if you can pay, you will pay to help fund the thing. But if you can't pay, it doesn't preclude you from being able to enter. There already existed one grammar school in the diocese, although not in Wales. This was at Ostrowy, founded early in the 15th century. But it was not until 1595 that Gabriel Goodman, Dean of Westminster, established another in Ruthen, the first actually properly in Wales outside of Brecon. Geoffrey Glynn, advocate of the Court of the Arches, provided free grammar schools at Bangor that were founded in 1557. He would be the first of many wealthy philanthropists who would help pay for a number of these schools. These schools were private of the government, thus in a separate category. All of these men, churches, and governments provided schools or contributed to the education of young men, keyword there, young men, in many of the larger towns in Wales during the second half of the Tudor period. In some cases, they made provisions for the maintenance of a schoolmaster. In others, they found schools whose lives ended up being relatively short in duration. But as a number of the schools were established, they continued to educate the young of their district to the present time period even now. The schools frequently modeled on older English schools were intended to bring young people of Wales into contact with the products of new learning and to ground them firmly in the Protestant faith. Again, it, again, going back to the idea that the biggest and most important process of literacy was that you would read the Bible. As an example of these schools, regulations of the friar schools in Bangor were drawn up by Dr. Alexander Noel, Dean of St. Paul's. The principal subject of the curriculum were Latin and Greek, though English was taught in lower forms of many schools, and provision was made for religious education. A short material catechism was then prepared for the school at Llantrist, in which pupils were to be instructed on Friday afternoons. The bishop would then frequently visit the school at St. Office, to examine the children, the school offered no instruction in Welsh, by the way, and pupils were discouraged from its use, even at playtime. By modern standards, these schools were very small. At Christ College, for example, there was provisions for only 20 poor scholars, as they were called, while at Cowbridge, the number of free pupils was limited to about 15, though fee-paying scholars increased those numbers. They still offered avenues for poor students to advance their education. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, 
or vegan and veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This smaller school concept ran largely by religious groups or private individuals began to change in part because of the Puritans. It was important to them to spread education and literacy so that they could create a larger mass of followers. As we mentioned earlier, this is part of the reason why so many of the Protestant faiths did this, especially when the best method that the Puritans had found in England to win people to their arguments was through their pamphlets and books. Hard to influence someone in Lampeter or in Carnarvon with a book written in a language that you do not speak, read, or write. For example, the Puritans of Massachusetts, their government of that particular colony set in place the first Religious Education Act. The religious basis of the act was explicit, as it stated its intentions was to thwart ye old deluder Satan in his goals to keep men from the knowledge of ye scriptures. To this law end, the law was required of every town with fifty or more families to hire and maintain a teacher to instruct all children in reading and writing. Towns of one hundred or more families were required to support a grammar school to prepare students to attend Harvard College. Back in England, these Puritans that had come to Massachusetts originated from the Puritans that were currently running the government, and under Cromwell had also prepared to generally educate their population. There began to be calls for educational reform. Like the American colonists, it was partially for religious reasons, but they were not the only ones. The Puritans desired to educate and thought it was inspired, at least in part, by a desire to raise the position of the poor who had suffered badly in the economic depressions of the 1630s and faced new problems because of war and famine driven by failures in the harvest in the previous five consecutive years. 
Puritans were going further than just calling for poor relief or social welfare or in symbolic presentations. They were aiming for a broad range of reforms, including provisions for technological and agricultural education, a system of schools to educate all children, and more financial aid for what they saw as a deserving student. We mentioned last episode that in Wales, ministers were being sent to reach the people and to preach the gospel, but as well, schools were being established. Funding was being set aside to help maintain these schools and to pay the educators. The old grammar schools, which were existing previous to this, were then managed to continue by the new Puritan, as long as they abided by the new Puritan curriculum, creating one of the first real standard education systems. Those private schools that were existing, including those run by priestly opponents, were even allowed to continue rather than to be restricted or disbarred. This meant that of the government-run schools, there were 63 of them established in Wales to offer free schooling, obviously a key thing to have if you could not afford it. They were open to both genders in some schools, and the spread of the school was not even or particularly sensible, as they were mostly along the border regions in the east and the sparsely spread across the rest of the Welsh-speaking west. Of these 63 schools, only 21 managed to last until 1660, in some cases because of their bad positioning in sparsely populated villages, which meant that they had to shut down, and then all the students were then sent to other schools. They also had issues with hiring teachers. In some cases, the educators that they did hire were of various levels of quality, which also created another layer of problem. This attempt at public education provided by the state was at least at the heart of the Puritan religious hopes and politics. It was also the first real attempt to Anglicanize the poorer classes in Wales. Understand that previously... The Welsh poorer classes, while being a target of various leaderships and thought processes, were not really important enough or significant enough to face any particular forced cultural change. Typically, the Welsh nobility were influenced by the wealth and power to use English and the languages that were used by those power centers, such as French and Latin. Before that, under Edward I, it was through populating Wales with English people and their allied settlers to try and break down Welsh culture. It was the idea of changing populations and destroying culture by simply presenting a different sort of cultural change, something that some have argued is what happened in the Anglo-Saxon area of Britain, which had been in as far as some scholars think, still remained Roman Britons. They just migrated their culture into the Anglo-Saxon culture. Whether you agree with that or not, that decision-making or that position, the reality of it was there were definitely people who were of Celtic origin who then flipped to being Anglo-Saxons and bore their culture, their language, and their dress in a way that made them not different really at all from their German migrating counterparts. This is what I think Edward had hoped to do in Wales and failed rather miserably 
to accomplish. So with all of that said, to this point, there had been no direct forcing of the Welsh poor to speak English. Obviously, if you wanted to deal with financial matters or if you wanted to deal with the government officials, you were almost always going to have to know English or have a representative that did. This didn't mean the entire population certainly did. And as we know, really in the western half of Wales, specifically in the north and in the uh, areas in the very west end, it was not traditional to speak English. It was actually very much still Welsh speaking right into the Victorian era. And so you have a definite breakdown of that here because one of the things that the Puritans had always tried to do, it seemed, was to try and convince the Welsh to start speaking English and that this was a way to do that. Bringing these schools in allowed this change by creating pockets of education, which was, of course, English only. The failure of these same schools and their lack of headmasters meant that much of their influence was mitigated by their short stay and lack of use. If the border areas had multiple schools covering smaller areas in the West, that was not the case at all. From Anglesey to Pembroke, there were only 12 schools in total for the entire coastal area. These were largely the Puritan government schools, which effectively made little progress, much like the ministers who tried to come into that part of Wales speaking only English failed pretty spectacularly to make any progress in an area where people don't speak your language, which have different ideals and goals than you do it becomes a very hard sell to try and convince them to join your side or become a part of your thought process. It's something that, of course, they will struggle with mightily for many, many years to come. And it's not until the Industrial Revolution and the mass migration with coal that we start to see that kind of flip on its head, along with a change in curriculum coming into vogue in all of Wales. All of these things will change this later, but right now we're still at the edge of all of this, and, and certainly this is the first real attempt to accomplish this, and had it not been for the collapse of the Commonwealth, it may have continued, and it may have eventually been as successful as it ended up being in the Victorian era, maybe even quicker. It's really hard to say, and this is only speculation on my own part. With that said and done... I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you would like to reach out to me, you can always do so at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to me on social media on Twitter at welshhistorypod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast or if you'd like to help contribute to our little community financially, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash welshhistory. Thank you for listening and I hope you all have a great day. Take care. We'll see you next time. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. 
Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.